Today's scripture reading will be from Psalms 82, verses 1 through 8. Please stand with me in the reading of God's word. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Superheroes, military heroes, sports heroes, political heroes, heroes from the past. Human culture is filled with heroes. The ancient Greeks were so infatuated with their heroes that they began to worship them as gods. Many scholars today have come to agree that Zeus, Athena, Ares, and the rest of the pantheon may have in fact been heroes from the past that were so revered that their memory became deified. Apart from the gods, some heroes became known as demi or half-gods as well. Now in the West, we tend uh, away from believing in myths and legends, yet the elevation of heroes remains a part of our lives. Nowhere is this more clear than the rise of, the comic, of comic books, and now the movie's based on those characters. While we understand those characters are fictional, um, nobody thinks Captain America's real, um, while we understand that those, <laughs> Wayne is distraught about that, while we understand those characters are fictional, we, we see children and parents dressed as these characters at events like Comic-Con or Halloween. But apart from these fictional heroes, we also celebrate military heroes, the brave men and women who have fought to defend our nation from tyranny and injustice. We also celebrate as heroes those who serve to protect us locally, such as police, fire departments, emergency medical services, and others. We celebrate their sacrifice. The celebration of heroism is ancient. The Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, that's being celebrated here in John 10, is a celebration which honored the heroes which saved Israel from a foreign ruler in 167 BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who overran Jerusalem and polluted the temple. He replaced, in the temple, he replaced the altar of God with the gods of paganism. The center of Jewish worship was made unclean. The Jews grew in strength against this foreign ruler and under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, they overflew their oppressor and recaptured the temple. After cleansing the temple, they rededicated it back to God, hence the Feast of Dedication. The feast was a celebration of salvation from God from tyranny, a remembrance of the great heroes during the revolt and a celebration of a cleansed temple. This is the feast Jesus was attending in John chapter 10. Last week, we saw Jesus talk about the true salvation offered from the Father through the Son. 
Jesus ended that part of the conversation with the climactic declaration, I and the Father are one. As we looked at last week, the Jewish people had no place in their religion for this view of God, that he would be Trinity. They misunderstood the message of the Old Testament and rejected the true nature of its revelation. In doing so, they have rejected the Son and have thereby rejected the Father. They have rejected the very salvation that was offered to their forefathers. During this feast, they remembered their heroes, but the greatest hero stood right in front of them and they missed it. Jesus' claim of equality with the Father stirs another controversy with the Jewish people. Let's begin at verse 31 and read through the rest of the chapter. It says, The Jews picked up stones again to, to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom, the, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your word, to study your word, to learn and drink deeply from your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that this message would be a preparation for, uh, for coming before your table today. But Lord, that the things we learn here may draw us closer to you in worship, and Lord, may draw us, draw us near to yourself. I pray, Lord, that... that um, she would bless his time, bless his sermon. In your name, amen. The Bible has only one hero. Every character we face fails in some way except one. The hero of the Bible is not Abraham or Moses. It's not Joshua or David. No, the only true hero of the text is the only one who is able to be the true savior. Every character fails except Jesus. In our passage, we'll see three dangers related to missing the hero of the Bible. First, we will see that we miss the hero when we reject his divinity. Second, we will see that we reject the hero when we reject scriptural authority. And third, we will see that others will miss the hero if we do not go or if we do not share the gospel with them. So first of all, we'll see that we miss the hero when we reject his divinity. Start back again in verse 31. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The Jews react strongly. Remember, in just the verse before, Jesus had said, I and the Father are one. That undeniable claim could only mean one thing in the minds of these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders. 
And they respond very strongly to Jesus. And they respond by wanting to kill him by throwing rocks at him. That's what this means. Picked up stones to stone him. They pick up big rocks and they would throw it at him until he's dead. That's what they wanted to do. Uh, it says again here, this directs our attention back to the similar reaction in chapter 8 and verse 59. Here we see the hostility towards Jesus continues to grow. Verse 32 says this, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus knows their motives, but he wants them to reflect on their own. Jesus has healed people who were born blind, healed people who were paralytics, as well as a number of other miracles which we can read about in the other Gospels. Remember, Jesus has been claiming that his works prove his divine nature and his relationship to the Father. This is the very truth that they refuse to hear. They could find ways to explain away Jesus' works, even by even claiming that he was demon-possessed. But Jesus claimed that these works proved that he was divine. This claim they could not abide. Jesus' description of the works sharpens the claim. He calls these good works. Which of these good works? In other words, this word, this, this way he's phrasing it, it could carry the idea of noble or even beautiful works. He tries to give them no way out. You have to say the works that I have done are good. You cannot claim that these works are evil. So if you consider them to be good, noble, beautiful works, there's only one conclusion, is that he is the son of God, that he is divine. For the Jews to deny Jesus' divinity would, to be reject, would be to reject the value of the works he performed. They would have to say, if they were going to reject Jesus as Messiah, reject Jesus as the son of God, they would have to say, everything you have done is worthless. And they couldn't. There was no way that they could. Then we look at verse 33. This is how the Jews respond to Jesus in his question he asked them. He says, that they, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. This is the claim that they believe Jesus has made. The real source of their struggle is not the works themselves, but Jesus' claim concerning the works, that they point to his divinity. This, they believe, is blasphemy. In their minds, Jesus is making himself out to be God. However, the irony is the opposite. Jesus was not making himself to be God. Rather, Jesus, as the Son of God, was made man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter 1. So we see that if we miss the true hero of Scripture, uh, we, we, will, we will miss the true hero of Scripture, the greatest hero to ever walk this earth, if we, like these Jewish leaders, reject the divinity of Jesus Christ. No one is able to deny that Jesus actually existed, but it is difficult for many to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Skeptics or, and false teachers alike have tried hard to show that the Bible doesn't actually claim that Jesus is God. Um, well, other, other religions will even respect Jesus, uh, but they cannot come to believe that Jesus is divine. So you might ask, how can we know that Jesus is divine? How can we know that he really is God? How can we know that? I submit to you that if Jesus rose from the dead, a unique and, and miraculous event and an event which he predicted 
then everything he said about himself is true, even his claim to be the son of God. At Easter, I'll, I'll walk into this, we'll develop this more fully, but today I want to give you a short, a short synopsis of how we can prove Jesus' divinity from, uh, from the resurrection. Jesus was crucified publicly. So masses of people saw him die. After Jesus rose from the dead, many people saw him. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that at one particular time, 500 people saw him at one particular time. During Paul's lifetime, many of those same 500 people were still alive. And you could ask them, what'd you see? And they would answer, we saw Jesus. We saw him die and then we saw him alive. Now today, there is no record, zero, no record of mass hallucinations. U.S. psychologists, there's no such thing as multiple people, especially a great, a great number of people, having the same hallucination at one time. This is a very popular explanation that maybe these people were hallucinating. They missed Jesus so much and they thought they saw him, but they really didn't. There is no record of mass hallucinations. There's no record of lots of people seeing the same hallucination at the same time. Never in the history of the world have multiple people experienced the same hallucination at the same time. Nonetheless, 500 people experiencing the same hallucination at once. Therefore, if 500 people, as Paul claims, could be verified to have seen Jesus after they saw him die, a person who was well-known in the region, there is no other option than to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. There's no other option. Paul himself, the writer of 1 Corinthians, was the greatest killer of Christians and was converted to Christianity. How on earth did that happen? How could he make, this is a guy who thought that Christianity, Christians, these people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they were the very enemies of his religion. And yet he converted and became a believer in Jesus as the resurrected savior. How on earth could this take place? The resurrected Jesus revealed himself to Paul. You can read about this in the book of Acts. Paul believed so firmly in the resurrection that he staked his entire reputation on it. Paul was a very intelligent man. He was a well-known man. Lots of people were following his teaching. And he said, he basically, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, there is no hope of salvation. And Christians of all people are the most to be pitied. Does that sound like someone who was not confident in the resurrection? Does that sound like someone who still had some doubts? No. I think about this. If you were a business owner and you say, you know what? I will give up my business. I will sell everything I have if this particular claim is not true. You have to be pretty sure that that claim isn't true. Right? And Paul here says, not that this is a business for Paul, but his ministry says, everything I have done is valueless. Unless, I'm, unless Jesus rose from the dead. He says, if you can disprove, basically says, if you can disprove the resurrection, you can disprove Christianity. Truth is, there's been no one to disprove the resurrection. There's been people who've tried, but none of their arguments have been able to stand. I've said this before, and I will, uh, but I believe that there is more evidence for the resurrection than there is to prove that I exist. 
If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God. We will miss the hero of scripture if we reject the divinity of Jesus. Secondly, we'll miss the hero of scripture when we reject the authority of scripture. Verse 34 says this. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I, I said, I am the son of God. Jesus is referring here. He's, he's drawing them back to what we read earlier in Psalm 82. He's drawing their memories back to in Psalm 82 where God says, I said, you, were, you are gods and you are sons of the most high. You will die like mere mortals. Paul, uh, so let's step back and explain what Jesus has going on here. It's a little bit complex. Uh, what he's saying here, he's drawing and saying your law. He is drawing a connection between the people, these Jewish authorities, and the scriptures with which they find authority. Is it, poss- it, is, it is possible also, uh, some interpreters say that this is Jesus' way of separating himself from their interpretation of the law as well. Jesus uh, quotes this section, Psalm 82, where he says, I said you are gods. Most likely, if you look back and you study Psalm 82 itself, most likely the you being described is one of, two pe- one of two groups. Either the people of Israel at the time of the giving of the law, the same group which God called the firstborn son in Exodus 4, 21 through 22, or the you is a reference to Israel's judges and leaders who are not doing their job. Arguments can be made for both interpretations, and both interpretations can be found in early Jewish writings uh, about the psalm. Either way, the title given in Psalm 82.6 shows this point. This is the point Jesus is trying to make above all. It shows that people other than God himself are referred to with the honorific title of gods. Now, again, this is a lowercase g. This is not people that are worshipped. This is a, just an honorary title that God is using for these people. You are leaders in that, in that kind of a sense. The context then is clear that they are not divine. These people that are being talked to in Psalm 82 are clearly not actually God, right? So Jesus is kind of, he's, what he's doing is making an argument what's called a, from lesser to greater. So he's making this, this point about a lesser section. He's saying, you know, these leaders are referred to as gods by the Lord, right? And, and here he's going to make an argument to say that, that, that how much greater should he be understood and, ha- and, and be able to have the title of God. Rather, the people in Psalm 82, uh, uh, rather than, being, uh, the, than actually being called divine, the leaders in Psalm 82 are being scolded for their poor leadership of the sheep. God will not raise them up, but rather will cut them down. In bringing this passage to bear in the conversation, we see, again, this good shepherd versus bad shepherd metaphor that's been going on in the whole chapter. Jesus is not only the intended replacement of these judges in Psalm 82, but he is also the perfect fulfillment of their office. What Jesus is showing is, and we'll see this at the very end of Psalm 82, uh, the, the God, uh, God is called upon to judge the earth and inherit the nations. Standing before the Jews, then, is the fulfillment of the call of the people in the psalm. They want God to judge the nations, and here is the judge of all the earth standing before them. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to bring salvation to the nations and one day will return to judge the earth. Jesus continues to use this psalm in verse, uh, continues to use this psalm in verse 38 
uh, where he where he mentions uh, um, or he claims that believing in him that, that these Jewish leaders believed in him uh, in his works it will cause them to know and to understand the unique relationship of the Son to the Father. This language echoes Psalm eighty two five, where the leaders of Israel are said to have neither knowledge nor understanding. So rather than these these bad leaders who didn't have knowledge or understanding, Jesus tells these Jewish leaders, if you believe in me, you will have knowledge and you will have understanding. You will know and you will understand. So Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 82 in his explanation to them. Now let's jump back to verse 35. Jesus Jesus, again, he's explaining this whole, this whole section. He, says, uh, he quotes this passage of Psalm 82 in verse 34. Verse 35, he says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, these people, these humans, these, these judges, or these people of Israel, and Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, Jesus is claiming there of the authority of Scripture there. He says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated or made holy and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If people, these, these just these irregular human, even bad judges were referred to by the Lord as God's lowercase g, how much more than the one who was sent from the father? How much more should he be allowed to be called God and the son of God? Now, again, Jesus is trying to help them understand their own interpretation of Scripture is conflicting with their desire to kill Jesus. Right? He's showing you are, you are making no sense here. Your desire to kill me because I've said I'm the Son of God makes no sense if you were to use your Bibles. Right? If you were to understand your Bibles, this would make no sense. Essentially, Jesus argues if authoritative, authoritative scripture can call these people gods, then how much more ought you, believe, ought you to believe that the one sent by the Father is God? Verses 37 and 38, Jesus gives one final challenge. Look at verse 37. He says, if I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus gives us one final challenge. He says, if my works are not really from the Father, then don't believe me. Don't trust in me. But even if you can't believe me, believe my works. Jesus knows that believing his works is one step away from believing his divine origin. If, he, if they really do believe that his works are good and that they are from God the Father, then it must be true that there is something special about Jesus. And that will only lead them to one conclusion is that he is divine, that he is fully God and fully man, the Savior of the world. That's the challenge he lays before them. Verse 39 then, this is how they respond. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Nothing has changed. Jesus has given them solid argumentation, but they are resolved to, uh, to decide to arrest Jesus. Jesus' insistence on his divine nature and his confrontation of their understanding of Scripture leaves the crowd in the same place they started, ready to arrest and kill Jesus. Nothing has changed. They could not hear and further, it says they escaped from his hands. We've seen this before. Why does Jesus escape from their hands? Because it wasn't time yet. God's timing had not come to happen yet. 
Right? We'll see this at the end of the book of John in, in, in a few months as we get to the end of, book of, of the book of John. We'll see when this actually starts to take place and when God's timing is perfect. But here, the time hasn't happened yet. And Jesus is able to escape from their hands. Now here we see how Jesus used Scripture to prove that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. The Old Testament Scriptures declare his divinity and declare the same message of salvation that he offers. The argument Jesus made from Scripture should have caused the Jews to rethink their desire to kill Jesus, yet their unfounded opinions about Jesus overshadowed biblical argument. Especially, they rejected the very authority of Scripture upon which Jesus grounded his argument when he said, and Scripture cannot be broken. Without a firm belief in the authority of Scripture, we will miss the hero of Scripture, we must all be students of God's word, not to find something to encourage us, but to seek out the message that God intended for us to read in the text. When we read the Bible looking for heroes in anyone other than Jesus, we miss the point of those characters in the text. Moses couldn't enter the promised land because he had disobeyed God. Joshua never finished the task that God had given him. Gideon ended up leading the people into idolatry. Jacob had an inappropriate relationship with his daughter-in-law because he thought that she was a prostitute. In their failure, we are drawn to look for the real hero, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. As each person who is raised up crumbles down, we are, are forced to look, where is the hero? Where is he? None of these guys are heroes. These are all messed up people. Right? These are all messed up people. I don't want to be like them. Where's the guy that I want that's going to save me? Right? We are drawn forward in the scriptures to look for the hero, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3. When we treat the Bible as children's stories and not as God's revelation of salvation, we miss the hero just like these Jewish leaders miss the hero standing right in front of them. Jesus showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus how all Scripture pointed to him. Only when we truly believe in the authority of Scripture will we be able to understand Scripture the way God intended us to understand it. And when we understand it as God intended us to understand it as authoritative revelation, only then can we truly be able to respond in obedience to the text. we don't see scripture as authoritative, if we don't see scripture as having authority over us, we will follow the tendency to devalue scripture, to say, that doesn't apply to me. Well, that's sin. That, that, that's not talking about my sin. That's talking about their sin. Rather, if we see scripture as authoritative, when scripture speaks, we must listen if we read the scriptures as God intended us to read the scriptures, when scripture speaks into our lives, we must respond in worship and obedience. We have seen that we will miss the hero if we reject his divinity. We've seen that we will miss the hero if we reject scriptural authority. And finally, we see that others will miss the hero if we don't go. Look at verse 40. Jesus went away. It says, he went away across the Jordan to the place where John, that is John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. 
and many believed in him there. John 10 ends where John 1 began with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been long dead by this point, but we see the continuing impact of his ministry. The Gospel of John actually divides naturally at the end of John 10 here. You see the John, Jesus' public ministry in, in, in the, in the start at the beginning of John and ends, these public aspects of his ministry begin, end at the end of John chapter 10. This bookending of Jesus' public ministry with Jesus returning to where he started ends the first cycle of ministry and ends Jesus' public ministry in the gospel. Returning where he started also may seem like a defeat, but nothing could be further from the truth. Right? This would be the person, if you would, you know, to make it look like defeat. This would be you go out on your own and you try yourself out in the world. Right? You leave your mom and dad's house. You try out in the world and you fail. And what happens? You go back to mom and dad's house. Right? Maybe. Right? Maybe not. Right, but that, that's kind of what, what it could look like. And again, for, his, for the people he had just had this interaction with, these Jewish authorities, they probably saw this as him losing. Ha, he lost. His ministry failed. He's going back to where he came from. He's starting where he started, right? Get out of here, Jesus. You're done. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, continue on here. John, John uh, draws us to the end of this, of, this, of this section here and shows us that there is indeed great victory. Look at verse 41 then. It says, and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Even though John the Baptist is dead, the impact of his ministry is fresh in the minds of these people. They recognize that John the Baptist did not perform any signs. He didn't perform any miracles. But instead, he pointed to Jesus. Remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' signs spoke for themselves, but the people could not help but recognize that everything John said about this man was true. Now, everything that John had said about Jesus has not happened yet, right? But everything that John had said about who Jesus was is absolutely true, and these people recognized that. Then look at verse 42, and many believed in him there. Because of the impact of John's testimony, coupled with the evidence from Jesus' identity, from his miracles and teaching, many people believed in him. What looked like defeat was really a great victory. So how do we apply this? These people recognized the truth about Jesus because John had been faithful to share the good news of Jesus. These people were able to recognize the hero because someone had told them about him. The same is true today. Others will die in their sin. They will never know that there's a great hero ready to rescue them unless we take on the responsibility to share the gospel with them. Matthew 28 commands us to go and teach all nations. You never know what God will do with your obedience. These people didn't even come to believe in Jesus until long after John was dead. We are called to be obedient, not to save people. Do you know that? It's not your responsibility to make sure people get saved. It's your responsibility to be obedient and share the gospel. Sometimes we add that extra burden on ourselves. We say, well, I shared the gospel with somebody and they didn't believe in Jesus right there, right then and there. 
I'm a failure and I shouldn't do this anymore. The truth is that what God has called us to is not to save people. God has called us to share the gospel. God's job is to save people. That is not our job. Only God can save people. But how will they hear without someone to tell them? Others will miss the hero if we don't share the hero with them. We have many people today that we consider heroes. However, Scripture tells us there's only one hero that really matters, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the... The the gospel of John tells us that Jesus was the eternal son of God, always existing, never had a beginning, does not have an end. And he took on humanity for one purpose, to die for our sins, that we may have life. See, the truth of the matter is we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sin makes us the very enemy of God. We are born in that sin, and as we continue to grow up, we grow deeper and deeper into that sin, into self-worship, and ultimately worship of the very enemy of God, worship of Satan himself. And God, because of his love for us, sent the Son to die for us. Because only by becoming a man could he die. God cannot die. Therefore, he had to take on humanity so that he could die. Why did he have to die? Because sin deserves death. Your sin, my sin, deserves nothing else but death. So in order for that payment to be made, God had to take on humanity in order to suffer and die for our sins on our behalf. But if the story ended there, it wouldn't be good news. No, three days after Jesus died, from the, after Jesus died, he rose gloriously from the grave. And in his resurrection, he conquers sin and Satan and death and has made salvation available to you and to me for free. That's the gospel. That's the hero, right? You're not going to find the hero in a comic book. There's only one book that contains the hero. The only one who can give true salvation, that's Jesus Christ. So move into our time of invitation. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you have not believed in Jesus Christ as the hero, as the Savior of the world, as the God of the Bible, as the Son of God, if you've not given your life and trusted Him in Him with your salvation, now is an opportunity to respond. You can also join me afterwards in service. I'd love to talk to you about how you can know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, how you can know for sure that you're following the true hero. Maybe you're here today and there's some other aspect of the message today. Maybe, maybe uh, believing in Jesus as the Son of God has been a difficult task for you. Maybe, maybe trusting Scripture as authoritative in your life has been difficult for you. Maybe, you're, maybe you uh, are challenged by the idea that others need to hear the gospel and you need to go to them. This is an opportunity to respond between you and the Lord. You can bow and pray in your seats. You can use this, these stairs as an altar. There's nothing special about these stairs. Um, you're welcome to use that during this time of invitation. Let me pray for us when we get to an invitation. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your word. Lord, to see your word fleshed out, to see 
what your scriptures teach us, Lord. And then thank you for the opportunity we have to respond. Lord, you call us to worship you. I pray that we would worship you in the way we respond to this. And as we move into our, our time of Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that this would be a time that glorifies you. In your name, amen.